0: This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to Awakenings at gmail, or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I want to thank everyone for listening. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or leave a review at iTunes or mormondiscussionspodcast.org. I recently read an interesting story. It's about a Buddhist monk. He'd been trying to become enlightened for a long, long time. Done all the meditation, the service, shaved his head. Had his sabbatical on the road, living at the mercy of others. Had done all these things and still was not enlightened. He was almost to the point where he had given up. Anyways, he was walking through the market one day. And he went up to the butcher who was selling meat And he said, give me the best piece of meat. And the butcher looked up and he said, all the meat here is the best piece of meat. It's all the best. There's no meat that I sell that's not the best. And at that moment, the Buddhist monk became instantly enlightened. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. No, it's not the end of the podcast, though it should be. But it's not, because I know there's some people out there who are saying, well, what what do you mean every piece of meat's the best? How can that, that's, some meat's better than others, Jack. And that's true, but that's sort of missing the point here. I think even the butcher knew that some of the meat was better than others. He's no dummy. He's trying to make a sale, okay. But this idea at a higher level that all the meat was the best. There's no meat that's not the best. This made the monk think about experience, life, his in particular, others more generally, and he realized that it's all the best, all is good, all is wonderful, and he became instantly enlightened. Now, I don't profess to be any expert on enlightenment. My sense is that it means knowing what is what, not being deluded anymore about the facts, about the truth. There's a great scene in one of the great comedic gems of the late 70s and early 80s, The Jerk, starring Steve Martin. Steve Martin is leaving home for the first time. and His father takes him out to the backyard to give him some last-minute advice. And he points down at the ground at a massive pile of dog manure. And he points at and he says, what's that? And Steve says, the S word, you know, it's dog manure. Manure, but he used the more impolite term that we've all heard in fits of rage, the S-word. And his dad nods and says, yes, that's right. It's, you know, the S-word. Then his dad holds up a can of Shinola, which is used to shine your shoes. And he says, what's this? Steve Martin looks at him and goes, Shinola? The dad nods proudly, yes. Claps Steve Martin on the back. Now you're ready for the world, Steve. You know the difference between the S-word and Shinola. That's a funny expression I heard growing up in the Midwest. People would say that from time to time. I always thought that was funny. If someone was a moron, they didn't know the difference between the S-word and Shinola. Couldn't distinguish between horse manure and Shinola. You know, I thought that was funny, the idea that people might mistake in horse manure for Shinola and use the horse manure to shine their shoes before, you know... That whole logic chain amused me. So I always remember this expression. But it speaks about something a little more profound, doesn't it? Which is knowing what's what. Not being confused. Knowing that a can of Shinola can be used to polish your shoes, but not a pile of manure. A distinction that's easily made by most people. And so it makes for good illustration of discernment, understanding, wisdom, And in this case, enlightenment. And again, what is enlightenment? Well, I think it means you know the truth. You know reality. You know what is versus what you're just dreaming or what you're deluded about. You can distinguish reality from the illusion. Given that, it's particularly interesting that the monk in the story that we just told became enlightened, became able to distinguish reality from the illusion, when he heard a phrase that on one level couldn't possibly be true, that all the pieces of meat this butcher sold were the best. They're all the best. There's no piece of meat that's not the best sold here. How does that make any sense? That seems like it's the ultimate propagation of an illusion that all the meat is equal, every cut. The motivations of the butcher are clear, to make a sale. So how can that lead to enlightenment This makes no sense, of course, particularly for us Western folks, particularly for us living in the modern world, because we live in a binary world. We live in a world dominated by binary code, binary decisions, binary comparisons. Our digital world is built upon the fact that something is either a one or a zero and not both. Things are true or false, right or wrong, good or bad, light or dark, And we love to affix our labels, most of which are based in this binary logic. Active, inactive, worthy, unworthy, morally clean, or filthy. It's a binary world, or so it seems. Yet when this monk considered that every piece of meat sold was the best, he became instantly enlightened. So clearly there's something more to life than just knowing the difference between a one and a zero. Yet our entire world is built upon just that. Built upon being right or not right. And it leads to all sorts of odd results. It seems like the deeper meanings of life are found in weird paradoxes that don't seem to make any sense. Like all the meat being the best or... Losing your life and then finding it. Or during the hard times in life, that's when you'll be the happiest and grow the most. And how does this make any sense? And I think it all comes down to the way that we view the world. Do we view the world in a dualistic or a binary fashion like we do in the West? Or do we view the world in a more holistic or non-dualistic fashion like is typified in the East? And these are kind of pretentious terms. I mean, admittedly. If you want to make people think you're pretentious at your next dinner party, just use terms like dualistic or non-dualistic. Most people, when they hear these terms, will think whoever uttered them is a jerk, and most of the times they're right. Still, I mean, it's kind of an interesting concept to talk about. Non-duality refers to the idea that most things are neither true nor not true. But something being true or false or good or bad is merely the result of our projecting onto it what we think, what our judgments are. So that's kind of weird, right? Kind of rattles our notions of objective truth, objective good, objective bad, as separate from what's going on inside our own heads. Well, that's, boy, that's Eastern indeed. I can hear the chanting, And the drums and the smell of ayahuasca burning in the background, even as we're talking about this. It's weird to think that something's neither true nor not true. What does that mean? And what are the implications? Man, it gets really crazy. People who believe this way, like the Buddhists, for example, though they're not the only group that believe this way. They say things like, every time you make a distinction between true and not true, you make an error. And you cause suffering. Well, you read this stuff, and to the untrained mind, this man, this just sounds evil. I mean, isn't the first thing that Satan does is try to convince you there is no Satan? Jack, I'm turning this podcast off right now. I'll visit you in hell, but I won't accompany you there. Goodbye. And we go crazy with this, right? I mean, we can say things like, well, it doesn't matter if I kill anyone or cheat on my wife or start gambling and go to the strip club and... Because none of those things are objectively evil. I'm just projecting evil onto them and blah, 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 blah. That's what I mean by to the untrained mind, to the immature, that's always the first conclusion that they draw. Yay, now I have carte blanche to be a jerk. Well, not even the Buddhists believe that about non-dualistic thinking. I mean, what the Buddhists are really trying to say with all this non-dualistic thinking stuff is things are the way they are, the way they are, the way they are, and you can believe whatever you want and you can judge the world and other people and things based on whatever set of beliefs you have, but things are what they are, what they are, no matter what you believe and no matter how you want them to be, at least at this very moment, And so if you're judging everything based on a set of beliefs, or if you're griping about the way things are at the very moment that life is happening, which is now, you're just creating misery. You're projecting, you're using binary tools of good, bad, light, dark, evil, righteousness, active, inactive, to come to the inevitable conclusion that my life stinks and everything's terrible. And I can never be happy until we get all the switches going in the right way. Good, righteousness, rich, active, beautiful, wonderful. And until all these binary requirements are met, there'll be no happiness for me or anyone else. We know people like that, don't we? We live in fear of them and their perpetual dissatisfaction. If you are one of these people, you are miserable, And if you live with someone like this, it's easy to get caught up in their misery vortex. But at a minimum, you can see how miserable they are. There is an endless projection, endless judging, endless dissatisfaction. An eternal lack of acceptance of what is. A perpetual quest to get all the binary switches in their life. Pointed the right way. And so when the butchers in life say things like, all the meat is the best meat, there's no meat here that's not the best, while objectively that may not be a true statement, it does make us think, man, am I judgmental? Man, am I unaccepting and critical? Maybe I need to start experiencing more and evaluating less. I think that's what all this non-dualistic gobbledygook is ultimately trying to help us understand. I've heard similar concepts expressed in slightly different ways. One of my favorites is you should stop trying to achieve happiness and just be happy. Another is you should stop trying to win and enjoy the game. And our Western binary minds always react to these sort of statements. Well, how can I be happy if I don't have X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F? And what's the point of playing if I'm always losing? Well, those are interesting questions, aren't they? And when you start thinking about them, you get a little bit closer to the non-dualistic view. Because the fact is, you're not always gonna win, you're not always gonna be right, You're not going to have all the requirements you think are necessary prior to your being happy met. And since this is the case, there must be something else going on in life. There must be some other purpose. There must be, in the words of the Buddhist or the non dualist or however you want to think about it, a world in which things are neither true nor not true, neither good nor not good. There's something deeper and broader to life than mere binary classifications will allow us to consider. Somehow, in the words of the butcher, all the meats are the best. There's no meat sold here that's not the best. And when you start thinking that way, you find that you've climbed up a few rungs on the old ladder. And from this perspective, all of life looks different than it did before. Not just different, but better. Your horizons have been pushed a little farther out. Your possibilities have been increased. And one of the most liberating things that happens is you stop being influenced by the binary thinking of others. You stop allowing the proclamations of others to dictate what you think. You don't allow the projections, the classifications, the either-ors, the ins and outs, as declared by others, even those in positions of perceived authority, to influence you any more, at least not categorically. You may consider what they say. Maybe they have things, good things to say. Who knows? But the heuristic that you use to judge whether what you hear from others changes. You go from someone who has granted authority to others to declare to you what is what, to retaining that authority yourself to decide based on the content of what is being said. You stop thinking in terms of if this person said this, it must be true. That's a heuristic to, hmm, let's hear what this person has to say, let's consider it and judge it on its merits. That sounds like a small thing, but it's incredibly liberating. And you can start comparing your own experience with the declarations of others who may or may not be basing their declarations on their own experience, but might just be echoing the things that they've heard. We're wading into uncharted waters here, or are we? Is not all of life conducted in that way? Jesus thought it was, I think, when he says things like, You're declaring your own traditions, you scribes and Pharisees, as commandments from God. Your traditions are not necessarily commandments from God, you scribes and Pharisees. They're just traditions. Jesus did other things like not actively enforce the laws of the day. You remember there was a woman taken in adultery and all the scribes and Pharisees surrounded her, picked up stones, were ready to kill her in a bizarre honor killing of sorts. And they asked if Jesus would go along with this. And he just looked at the ground, spit in the mud, drew some pictures And told everybody, well, why don't those who are totally clean cast the first stone? And what was interesting about that declaration is he wanted them to determine whether someone was clean or not based on their own laws and traditions and rules, their own little maze, even a brilliant castigation of not just the scribes and Pharisees, but a clear statement about their entire way of thinking maybe the woman taken in adultery was neither good nor not good maybe the laws that they had been using to condemn her were neither true nor not true maybe there was something much broader and deeper going on jesus said things like judge not lest ye be judged turn the other cheek have mercy instead of demanding an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth And what's Jesus saying with all this? He's basically saying, We don't live in such a binary world after all. You know, you're not as binary as you think. And why was he saying all that? Well, I think he liked to poke the scribes and the Pharisees, those paragons of dualistic thinking. But I think at the end of the day, he had a much more compassionate reason to speak this way. He wanted everybody just to give themselves a break. Go easy on yourselves. You may not be doing everything you're supposed to be doing. You may have been caught in the town square, even guilty of adultery, but let's not all pick up rocks and stone ourselves. Let's give ourselves a break. There's something bigger going on. We're all getting experience. We're all getting a little wiser. We're all learning what's what. Our fantasies are being replaced with experience. Our beliefs and faith are being replaced with knowledge and wisdom. While all that's happening, just, you know, be nice to yourselves. And if you can't be nice to yourselves, well, you know, take it easy on others. I will have mercy, Jesus said, not sacrifice. There's another side to that same coin, of course, which is if you think you're so great... You think you're so righteous because you got all the switches pointed in the right way in life. You might not be. You might be self-righteous or arrogant or full of ego or just an insufferable jerk. So people are neither good nor not good. Neither righteous nor not righteous. And commandments which push us along the path help us. Help prescribe our path. Lead us, guide us, coach us, well, they're neither true nor not true. They've got a purpose to serve, and then they'll go away, too. This is radical, indeed. Not what you typically hear in your Gospel Doctrine class on Sunday mornings or afternoons, if that's when you attend church. This point of view, in one sense, even obviates the needs for an atonement, doesn't it? That's heretical, indeed. Indeed. So I want to take that a little bit further even. I think the atonement is the transition from binary and dualistic thinking to non-binary, non-dualistic thinking. I think that that's what the atonement is all about. Because when you commit a sin, you're evil, you're dark, you're dirty. And we like to say things like, well, the atonement will wash that dirt away and will make you clean again. I think that works for a while. As a concept, but ultimately, I think the atonement says, look, you may have done this thing, you learned from it, you moved on, it shaped you. Now you're still you, but you're no longer what you were anymore. Sounds pretty non dualistic to me. I would feel more guilty about making these sort of declarations about the atonement if anyone else could explain it better. And to date, the most authoritative explanations on the atonement that we've heard always include this sort of phraseology. Well, we're not really sure how it works somehow in the grand scheme of things. Justice is blah, 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 blah. That sounds to me like someone using binary thinking to understand a non dualistic world. And even my uttering of that phrase, it's going to make me pretentious. I know it sounds very pretentious. And some of you are thinking makes me a jerk. But in my mind, what greater gift could anyone give to someone else than to say, this way you're thinking about yourself, all this beating up of yourself you're doing, all the self-mortification, all the mental anguish you're causing yourself because you're unable to keep certain rules or control an impulse temporarily. Just take it easy. It's okay. Everything's going to be fine in the end. You're still a being of light. You're going to get through it. It's not good on the one hand, but it's not not good on the other. It's going to teach you something. Because at the end of the day, what makes you happy or sad or full of joy or feeling satisfied or not is what's going on between your ears. What you think about things. And if there's some divine being out there giving me permission to think differently, to be more compassionate towards myself, I'm going to take it. And that is the real gift that comes from the divine. It's the gift that we can give each other in the form of forgiveness, which is really just saying, look, it's okay. It's not a big deal. Let's just try a little harder next time. We're going to get there. And if you're stuck in a binary world with binary thinking, it's hard to let it go. And if you're feeling judged by someone else who's stuck in a binary world, just remember they're much harder on themselves than they are on you. And the only thing the atonement can do for people like that is temporarily wash away something. But then it's back to square one, the infinite loop. Compassion and charity, on the other hand come when you get rid of dualistic thinking. When you start seeing all of life as the best. There's no meat sold here that's not the best. It's all the best. And when you start to understand that, you'll be instantly enlightened like our Buddhist monk. The illusions and the fantasies will start to fade away and you'll start to see things as they are. You'll stop judging according to some set of whatever given to you by someone else and will start relying on your own experience. You'll stop thinking either or and start thinking yes and. There's a great story in the Old Testament that illustrates this principle, a story we hardly ever talk about, the story of Jonah. I'm not sure how true any of the facts of Jonah are, by the way. It's ridiculous on its face. Some guy gets swallowed by a whale and spit out. Th- I mean, it's, you know, so I'm not going to debate the literal merits of Jonah. But the story is really interesting. This guy, Jonah, is told by God to go and preach to the people of Nineveh. Because they need to be helped out. They're headed down the wrong path. They're wicked. And Jonah says, no thanks. People of Nineveh are crazy and they kill people from my tribe. Uh No. So he gets on a sailing ship and he heads to Tarshish. I'm not quite sure why he thinks sailing away from his homeland is going to somehow make him invisible to God, but that's what he thinks. And while he's on the ship, this massive storm comes up, starts beating on the ship. Huge waves emerge. Think Hurricane Irma in the Mediterranean Sea and all the sailors, superstitious as they were, start looking around each other and saying, okay, which one of you is committed the horrible sin which has caused God to rain this huge hurricane on us. And Jonah doesn't admit it's him. He has his suspicions, but he—I mean, he's kind of a weaselly guy, so he doesn't say anything. He's hoping that the storm will just somehow go away. But instead, all the sailors start to cast lots. They're going to use occult methods to determine who the sinner is and they cast lots and it falls on Jonah and then Jonah finally says, yeah, it's me. God told me to go preach to Nineveh and while he's explaining all this, they pick him up and they throw him overboard. And you think the moral of the story is to be understood at this point, you know, do what God says or you'll be thrown overboard. That's not the moral of the story. He gets thrown overboard and then he gets swallowed by a whale, a fish technically A whale, as we know, is not a fish. It's a mammal. But I don't want to get technical here. But Jonah gets swallowed by an enormous fish. Somehow in the acid bath that he takes in the stomach of this fish, he lives. You know, the flesh doesn't just fall off his bones while he's sitting in this acid bath inside the fish stomach. And while he's sitting there, he thinks, well... Maybe I ought to pray. So he does. He says, look, I'm sorry I didn't do what you told me to do. And okay, I'll go preach to the people of Nineveh. It sure would be nice to get out of here. And he's there for three days, you know, begging in his binary way, begging for mercy. And after three days, the fish spits Jonah up and he lands on the beach. Then reluctantly, he walks into Nineveh this time. And he goes into the town square and starts saying how God's going to destroy the whole country if they don't repent. He says they got 40 days. God would like to see some sackcloth and ashes, which is what people do to themselves, what they wear and how they mark themselves when they're really repentant. So the king in Nineveh says, you know, this guy Jonah, you know, he's he's not one of our people. He... Smells like a fish, but he may be onto to something. We could probably stand to change our ways. That might be a good idea. And so the whole country of Nineveh does that. They all repent in sackcloth and ashes. And Jonah's, well, Jonah's a little bummed by this. He's surprised that they listened to him. He thought that they were going to kill him at the mere suggestion that they repent or kill him because he wasn't a Ninevite. He certainly didn't expect them to say, hmm, this guy Jonah, he, you know, he's got a point. Let's do that. Let's repent. And he's not happy about it. I mean, he's, he's actually grumpy about this. That's what's weird about the story. And he goes outside of the city while the city's repenting during this period of, you know, probation, whatever you want to call it. He builds a little shelter, and he's, he's out there basically sulking. And he's basically saying, these people of Nineveh, they stink. They're unrighteous. They're terrible people. Why the heck is God given them a break? This is crap. God should kill these Ninevites. They're jerks. He should have never sent me to preach repentance to them. In fact, these people, these Ninevites, they don't deserve to have a chance to repent to begin with. Oh, then the story starts to make sense. Now we understand why Jonah didn't go to Nineveh to begin with. He hated those people. He was lost in his binary world. These people were bad as he judged them. They deserved nothing, as he projected onto them. He hated them. That's what was going on in between his ears. And he was going to take it upon himself to make sure God didn't bless them. Oh, yeah, now getting on the ship to Tarshish makes a little more sense. He judged the Ninevites immutably unworthy, less than people who had not complied with the law, the truth. And God granting to the people of Nineveh a new way of thinking about things, a new way to live their lives, a relatively easy forgiveness, a new, non-dualistic, higher way of thinking about life. Well, and Jonah wasn't having it. So he just sat there and sulked in the sun. And God looked down on Jonah and saw that he was sulking in the sun. And he saw that Jonah had built this lame little lean-to to protect himself from the sun. So God, in his mercy to Jonah this time, made this gourd plant grow over the roof of his his lean-to so that Jonah would have full protection from the sun, real shade to sit in. Then God played a little joke on Jonah. He had a worm kill this plant. So then Jonah was exposed to the sun again. So, you know, Jonah's grumpy to begin with, and then he gets a little shade, and that made him feel a little better, I guess. And then God took the shade away, so now he's just grumpy. Everything stinks. Life is terrible. I hate myself. I hate everybody. I, Well, I... what does this sound like? This sounds like the fruits of binary thinking. And while Jonah is at the apex of his dualistic vortex, God shows up and says, Gee, Jonah, you're kind of sad that I killed the gourd plant. That was giving you the shade, aren't you? And Jonah effectively says, yeah, I'm mad about the gourd plant. Of course, we know that Jonah's really mad about the Ninevites and their redemption. Then God says this to Jonah. Thou hast had pity on the gourd, the gourd plant, for which thou hast not labored, nor madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I have pity on Nineveh, this great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. And then the book of Jonah ends. And it's such a great ending, isn't it? Because it's saying to Jonah, you need to think differently. You need to stop being so judgy. Maybe you need to stop thinking in such a binary way about yourself, about the Ninevites, about me, about right and wrong, about progress, happiness, who deserves what. You need to think anew. It's a great gift to be able to think anew, to think differently, to think non-dualistically. Well, I've gone on too long I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.